Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Reed Foley. I'm Lance Chalet. And this is The Proper Exit. This show is an exploration into the minds of entrepreneurs, founders, and the professionals who guide them as they prepare their businesses for eventual transition. We will hear directly from business owners their personal stories when selling a business. We will also discuss strategies and the tactics that have been executed across thousands of successful transitions and highlight what went right and what went wrong. For show notes and a replay of this episode, please visit advisors.ubs.com slash coral. Now for the disclosure. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Financial Services Incorporated. UBS Financial Services Incorporated does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. Tony Zona and UBS Financial Services Incorporated are not affiliated. Good morning, Reed. How are you today? I'm good, Lance. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. So I'm excited for our guest today. Uh, he's a good friend. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him for a number of years. He has some really good experience, um, you know, selling businesses in the also in the VC world, uh, an engineer by background. So this morning, I'd like to introduce you to Tony Zona. Hi, Lance. Hi, Reed. It's great to be here. Thanks, hey, Tony. Tony. Thanks for joining us. So just a little bit of background uh, about Tony. Um, he started his career uh, with Raytheon Missile Systems, was at Bell Labs uh, through the mid-90s, started a his uh, company, Quantum Bridge Communications, which we'll talk about. Uh, that was sold to Motorola. Uh, after that, he was, um, after he left Motorola after a few years, he was CEO of Pixtronics. Um, and sold that company to Qualcomm after uh, a number of years there and is really uh, now in the VC world, was always in the VC world, but he just started uh, a new uh, VC fund, uh, Tenon Ventures, um, with one of the founders of, of Pixtronics. And a uh, little side note, he is, as far as I know, not only a Bruins fan, but a uh, avid avid music fan. So Tony, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you, Lance. Thank you, Reed. Thanks. So um, one of the things in this podcast, we really try to to help um, business owners, whether they're uh, thinking about selling or or walking through a transaction or um, helping them organize their thoughts. But uh, we love to hear the stories of of businesses that that people start, and you and I have, you and I have talked a, a number of times. But I'd love to hear your story about um, Quantum Bridge and sort of how you guys started it. Um, you know, you started it, I think, uh, in two thousand or or right around the dot com bubble. Um, but if you could tell us that story, it, it's pretty amazing, and and it really seemed like it was a it it was a game changer for. Um, you know, in the fiber optic world, at least. Uh, it, it was. It was an interesting time, for sure, in telecom. So <clears throat> I was at uh, Bell Laboratories uh, for a number of years, actually 14 years, working on a variety of telecom systems. And um, in the mid to late 90s, uh, telecom and specifically optical networking uh, began to um, to explode. 
there was a there was a lot of activity. Well, one of the monumental things that happened in the industry was Cisco acquired a company, relatively small company, Serent, who dealt with um, digital loop carrier uh, systems and purchased that company for around $6 billion. So that sent sort of shock, shock waves through the uh, industry. And, um, you know, being at Bell Labs, being in the heart of it all, I was getting a lot of requests from those in the venture capital world uh, to uh, participate in uh, due diligence on a variety of companies. And that was really my first um, introduction to what was going on there, because I kind of had my head down working at Bell Labs and AT&T in my little echo chamber and didn't really uh, focus on much more than what we were doing in the business and um, and what the customer's needs were. But um, I also saw that there was a big hole in the in in the um, industry and what people were focused on. So the majority of, of activity in the optical space uh, was in long haul, and then maybe a little bit in sort of metro environments, but not much in the last mile. And the last mile was really a bottleneck when you start to look at smaller businesses and, um, and um, you know, residential units. And uh, most of them, the large majority, were still using you know, twisted peer copper and DSL technologies. And the cable companies were, were starting to make their move in delivering you know, more broadband internet services. So there was a need to provide a new technology. And at that point, I decided with a few other colleagues from Bell Labs to go off and start Quantum Bridge. So that was the genesis of it. Uh, we started in 1998, actually, and uh, late 98, November uh, timeframe. And between November 98 and uh, 2000, we went from, you know, uh, three founders, a handful of other engineers to uh, three product lines, uh, 360 employees, and filing our S1 in December of 2000. So that should give you a sense of how crazy things were in the late 90s in, um, in optical networking. What was, um, so during the late 90s, and, and that's about when I got started in, in the financial services business, but um, how was funding, was, was money uh, very loose at that point? You know, how was it for you to fund that expansion, that rapid expansion? It was, it was crazy. It was, it was just people wanting to throw gasoline on a fire. And uh, raising capital was was not uh, was not very difficult, and and um, and so we were able to do it. We were able to command uh, uh, huge valuations. Uh, capital was basically free at that point, uh, but things changed dramatically almost overnight. Did you start the business with sort of a VC lens? Were you looking to get a terminal value of it in a certain number of years? Or did you just start it because you saw the need? You weren't really sure of, of you know, how long you would want to build the business and grow the business? 
we, we, we knew there was a need. Uh, all of us had been in the industry for a number of years, so understood the customer, um, had great relationships with that customer, and uh, felt that we could build a, a valuable company. And didn't really think about you know, where it was going, really thought about how do we continue to add value and reduce risk for all of the stakeholders. So the stakeholders were obviously the investors in the company, uh, those that we took capital from and uh, with the intention of, of, of showing them some type of return. Uh, the, the employees of the company who decided to join us and, and um, you know, uh, attach their future to us and the management team and the concept and what we were trying to do. And then, of course, the customers who we had relationships with or any business partner, uh, suppliers, et cetera, who, um, who we were trying to serve. And so every day you went into the office and you decided, you know, what is it you're going to, going to do today to reduce risk and create value for each of those stakeholders? And that's really what, what uh, uh, drove us and, and, um, and I think should be a staple for any entrepreneur trying to create and grow a business. And, and Tony, when you, when you were going through the, the capital raise sort of process with, with Quantum, um, and, and I'm just fascinated by this whole, I mean, fiber optics, when, when we go through our, our uh, sort of investment process conversation, um, you know, it, there, was, there was certainly mania, you know, from, from what I've, I've sort of read about that time period around, around fiber optics and, and, um, and that whole, you know, growth uh, 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 period. But, um, but when you were raising capital, was it, were, were other VCs and investors uh, uh, valuing you, you guys on on a multiple of revenue, or was there any thought around that, or was it just kind of a, a you know basic idea? Just go grow as as quickly as possible. Here's a bunch of money, and um, and and just make it happen. Or or how was how was valuation thought of at, at that point in time? Uh, yeah, so it was a it was a non uh, traditional view at valuation. So it's not you know discounted cash flow traditional. Uh, you know, present value analysis yep. of valuation. Um, I had one banker. I mean, you know, I will try to keep names out of this conversation. Sure. Yep. But I had one one prominent banker uh, uh, tell me that the value of the company was based on a multiple of optical engineers that I had in the company. <laughs> so, just to give you an example of the the silliness. That really goes on in the industry, and you know it's it's easy to look back at it and and, and cite it for its absurdity. But um, at the time, the the group think in the industry was uh, was amazing. Um, you know, it's it's this time is different. You've heard that term before. Yeah, we're ju- we're just coming out of a period like that, right? Right, yeah. right, exactly, right. So, I mean, we raised the capital. We tried to spend it on things that were going to again add value and reduce risk. Uh, there's no reason you shouldn't raise capital when, when, uh, when you can, mm-hmm. um, uh, and 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 keep focused on on real growth uh, metrics, not not those that don't make sense. So. 
you know, it was a first time CEO for me. And there was a lot of learning and a lot of pushback on, you know, what was then the conventional wisdom that existed in the board uh, with the um, with the other investors uh, in the marketplace, uh, et cetera. Uh, but again, that all that all, you know, seemingly changed overnight. Mm-hmm. So I can talk a little bit about that. That would be great because one of the one and one of the questions maybe you could touch on is um, you talked about the mania and and just knowing that um, if you're running the business and you're focused on the fundamentals, right, and not letting that noise get around to you, do you think that helped? You know, when you sold the company, not saying the valuation didn't go down, but certainly focusing on the fundamentals so that when the smoke clears, you still have a viable company. Um, if you could touch on that and and just let us know if, if you think that helped. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think it's essential personally because you don't know. I mean, timing the market, as everybody knows, is, is, is extremely challenging. Um, nobody has the crystal ball. But you can see where it's headed. If you're in tune with the customer, you're in tune with the marketplace, uh, you, you know, you're clear-minded about what real value is. Uh, you can kind of plan ahead to some extent. Now, if we started a year earlier, instead of in 98, 97, we probably would have um, filed our our, our S1. Uh, um, we would have had the public offering. Um, and and But where the company would have gone from there, who knows? There were many companies who got out uh, before the market tanked. And um, and their their companies were uh, essentially uh, worth worthless. So uh, they don't exist today. But Quantum Bridge, uh, the essence of Quantum Bridge, still exists. They're still providing now third or fourth generation products to um, to carriers. Uh, the employees, a bulk of the employees. Um, uh, who we had uh, uh, in the company are still uh, are still there. So we filed the S one in December of two thousand and two thousand and one. Early two thousand and one, the market started to crack. I could see it in you know the CLEX, the competitive local exchange carriers, uh, actually going bankrupt and starting to um, uh, close their doors. Uh, everybody started to tighten. Um, it was clear to me that capital. Uh, was not going to be free any longer. Uh, uh, but the investors and uh, those involved in the in, in the company still wanted and still wanted to believe that the game wasn't over, that it was going to be a V-shaped recession, that this is just a glitch. We're going to be back on track. So we'll delay the, uh, the IPO from February to March to April. And if you remember 2001 with 9-11 and, and the like just continued to get, get worse. So we were moving towards what people termed in the industry as a nuclear winter uh, for optical networking. And so as crazy as it was on the, um, on the upside when things were, um, were great, uh, it got just as crazy on the downside where People did not want to touch anything associated with optical networking. It was, uh, you know, a new leprosy in the in the industry. Uh, 
uh, you know, could, could attract zero capital. And so fortunately, we moved quickly before uh, the rest of the industry sort of caught, caught up with uh, uh, you know, what was happening. And we went from 360 employees down to about 65 employees. We focused clearly on, uh, on one product line, that product line that we thought was essential um, uh, to the company and to the customer. And that was the fiber to the home product. And we just continued to push forward with the capital that we had raised during the good time. So we preserved capital and continued to serve the customer. That's great. And and was did 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 the actual business itself slow down, or or was it was it just the 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 the, the access to capital? Uh, the business itself slowed down. The early business. So again, you know. Uh, Prior to the end of 2000, early 2001, there were a number of new customers, CLEX, who were uh, purchasing product. Uh, but again, in terms of valuation, we had about $4 million in annual revenue in, in 2000. And the company was valued by the largest bankers in, in, in the world. You can guess who they are. Sure. Yep. Uh, they still are pretty large. They're still around. Uh, we're valuing the company at um, $3 billion. Right. So that was what the IPO was scheduled to go out at. So $4 million of revenue, $3 billion valuation. Obviously, that did not hold. Um, so things things changed. Those those early customers who, who didn't really have strong balance sheets or a strong business plan went away. And the um, and the older school customers with long sales cycles uh, were still there, and those are the ones you know the AT and T's, the Verizons, et cetera, of the world. Those are the ones that um, we continue to work with. They weren't ready to make a purchase. They too became risk averse because some of the companies they had uh, invested in. Uh, in terms of putting them in their network, we're now in financial straits. So we had to think about the business differently, you know, post uh, December of 2000 and into 2001 and 2002. Partnerships became, you know, more essential. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, that's what drove the acquisition of the company. And is that is that about when you started your partnership with Motorola? We had a partnership on a business level with Motorola because they provided a lot of the head-end video equipment, uh, you know, residential equipment like set-top boxes and the like. Uh, they weren't really, other than the wireless part of Motorola and the wireline part of Motorola, they had no business with, um, with any of the uh, existing um, local exchange carriers. So that was a business they were interested in. But we were also working with Siemens and Lucent and Alcatel and others. So uh, we were partnering on various bids with you know, various partners, depending on you know the guidance we received from the customer. And it and it sounds like so after you you went through 2001 and and you consolidated, it sounds like your business, right? So you focus on the one product that you thought was or the line that you thought was the best for the business. 
Um, after you came through that, did you start to expand again? Because I guess Motorola, you didn't go into the purchase with Motorola until 2004. Is that, is that that's right? correct? 2004. So there was the, you know, Verizon was pushing for their FIOS deployment and uh, that stimulated the, the, the partnership. We went into the bid with multiple partners. Um, Motorola uh, provided a unique combination because of the video equipment and um, in the telecom, traditional telecom equipment that we provided. And, um, and Verizon needed to be convinced that Motorola could serve them uh, from a, um, you know, from a service standpoint as well. And, um, and that's what motivated the acquisition uh, that, you know, Motorola wanted uh, the entire piece as a foray into um, a new customer segment for them. So that, that's, that's kind of um, what motivated it. And there was competition, obviously. Uh, so it motivated um, uh, Motorola to move relatively quickly. We knew that uh, we had, you know, limited options in terms of our ability to raise cap, more capital, uh, grow organically, uh, serve the customer without, uh, without a partner, large partners to, who could assume the risk in the negotiation. Um, and, and so we knew at that point that ultimately this thing was going to end up in, um, in us being acquired by somebody. And the question was, you know, who? And how can we get the most value at that point? Was was that part of the reason besides um, just sustaining the business? But was that part of the reason for some of the partnerships that you started to look into? Maybe working with a potential acquirer at some point, where you kind of thought down the road maybe that could happen. Yeah. Well, so again, you know, you have to every day reduce risk and create value. And uh, that, that was a clear avenue for, for accomplishing those two things. Uh, you know, not only our risk, but the risk in the marketplace, the risk for the customer, and increasing value by synergy between us and, uh, and another company. Um, so once we thought that that was, uh, was the, you know, the way to proceed, we did bring a banker on board to help with the process. And, and when, when you were going through that process of, of selecting a, a banker or, um, or just leveraging your own relationships, can, can you just kind of walk us through your, your thought process and going through uh, that activity? You know, like I'm sure, I'm sure it was, it was, it was competitive, you know, at that point. So bankers were probably knocking on your guys' door, you know, every day. Um, but, but what was, what were some of the things, I guess, that was it just kind of, you know, try to get the highest multiple for the, for the business at that point, And it was whatever banker, you know, had those relationships that you thought that they could leverage to get the highest multiple or, or was there something else that went into that decision-making when you were thinking about, um, uh, engaging a, a banker? Yeah. Well, everybody was telling us that they could get the highest multiple. So, right. uh, you, you have to, you know, understand sort of where the, you know, try to determine where, the believability lies. I think, you know, for, and this may not be true across the spectrum with it, with, with every business type, but for the businesses that I've been involved in, they've all been technical and the 
technical interaction with the other party, the acquirer, uh, is an important element. Uh, and it's all about relationships. So it's really, is there a banker there who can provide? Because what is the banker really going to do at the end of the day, right? Yes, they can maybe make some introductions to senior level level people within the acquiring company and within the right organizations. But we knew all of those people. We were already working with them all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's really about, you know, can you work with a banker who's going to stay in their lane and provide the value that uh, uh, that they can and uh, and allow the management team, the CEO, uh, myself at the time, uh, to to work the deal because it's really about relationships. So it's a relationship with the banker. Do you have the right type of a relationship where you think you can be on the same page and communicate? Um, as you go through the process and be in lockstep and allow the, you know, is the banker taking, willing to take some of the slings and arrows uh, because you can use the banker as a foil mm-hmm. uh, in the negotiation process uh, while you work the relationship with the, uh, with the acquiring companies, hopefully, uh, and work through that, work that through that process as well. Tony, when when you started speaking with the bankers on the personal side, did you and as you got closer and you sort of realized a liquidity event was going to happen, did you and your your partners start to do personal planning? Did you you know, how did you personally prepare for that? Because we see a lot of times where someone sells a company and they stay on, you know, for a certain number of years, right, to make sure that there's a smooth transition. And then there comes this point where they have to decide what they're going to do next, right? They're not usually going to stay with the acquirer. So did you start talking to people? How did you think through that on, on sort of the personal side with you and your partners? And, and I think a lot, I think a lot of people, we come, a lot of, of, of founders we, you know, we work with o- over time tend to um, just not think about the, the personal side at all. They're just very focused on the deal, um, right? So, so I'm actually really curious about that as well, how you kind of thought about that, if at all. Right. So uh, I think it's I think it's wise to have uh, somebody in your court. Again, it's about relationships and trust, but somebody who can uh, help guide you through that piece. It's important. We started to think about it uh, right before we filed our S1. So in, in 2000, because we thought there was going to be a liquidity event then. So we started to form some relationships with you know financial advisors and, and, and the like. Uh, so we could focus on the business. Right, because that's what kept us up at night, and and uh, and we wanted to make sure that somebody was thinking about planning um, uh, for the future and setting up, whether it's setting up, you know, the right types of trusts, um, uh, dealing with, you know, tax liability, you know, all of that, uh, while we focused intently on the business. And as you're going through a process, if it's an acquisition or if it's winning a bid with a major customer, you need to be 100% focused on, on, on that if you're going to really sort of marshal the resources and lead the company, you know, through the whatever chasm you're trying to, you know, cross. How did you think about sort of 
the next phase. So as you're going through that and, and, you know, you have sort of your team of personal professionals, your CPA, right? Your, your financial advisor and, and those folks, at what point did you start thinking about, okay, so the business is sold. Let's say you get through the deal. Um, how did you start thinking about your next venture or the next sort of chapter of your life? Was that right after the deal was done? Was that after a couple of years with Motorola? When did that come about? Yeah, it was after a couple of years with with Motorola. You know, remember I spent 14 years with a very large company, decided to make a transition, uh, founded Quantum Bridge, CEO of Quantum Bridge, basically lived in my own world and thought, oh wow, this is different from and then you know, back to Motorola, the vice president within Motorola managing. Um, the optical business and um, and then found that, well, hey, you know, another large company, things aren't so different from what they what they what they were. So it's it felt very familiar to me. And um, I wanted to take the company in a particular direction. Uh, it's tough to lead within a company like that, at least for me. I didn't have maybe the skill set to do that, but in any case, felt that uh, it was at some point I needed to move on. And so after about two and a half years, uh, I moved on with nothing really in sight. Uh, I'd been a telecom person. Telecom was still suffering from, you know, the downturn in 2001, uh, hadn't really um, uh, sort of rebounded from that yet. And it took me a little bit of time with some start and stops to think about, you know, kind of what was next. There were plenty of, you know, technical opportunities. What could I find the right business opportunity that could attract capital, uh, et cetera? And then I sort of got pulled into Pictronics in 2000. And it was late 2006, almost 2007, when I left um, uh, Motorola. And it was 2008, middle of 2008, when I joined Pixtronics. Before before we go to Pixtronics, um, just thinking back to uh, Quantum Bridge and, and when you sold that to Motorola, is there anything when you look back that maybe you and your partners would have done differently or... Um, you know, you went through a lot, right? You you went through an entire business cycle. So you went through growth and, you know, you went through 2001 and, and sort of a, a rebirth. Is there anything that you think that you and your partners would have done differently as you went through the sales process? Through the sales process? Yeah, through the liquidity process when you're talking to the bankers and, you know, Motorola and those sorts of things. I don't really think so. I mean, I mean, you're not, you know, maybe in the margin here or there, but I think in generally, in general, we um, we made a lot of the right the right moves. And again, you know, build a real business with real value. Develop options for yourself. So you're only you're only as good as your best alternative deal, yep. right? And is it raising capital? Is it you know either in the private market or public market? That wasn't really too available to us. Uh, is it just grow organically? We could have slowed down, uh, conserved cash. Some companies did that, uh, but took a lot longer 
than they expected. And eventually they needed to raise cash and couldn't do it. So in hindsight, I think we made we made the right right moves. And it's it's probably safe to say because you guys were prepared, right? So you you look through all the different options, you you were ready for the sale. You didn't just, you know, see someone throwing money at you and decide to take it because you're in a rough economic environment. You actually went through like an like I would expect an engineer to all the different options. And this is if this happens, then A, if this happens, then B. And that's we're positioned. We're positioned for some good luck. I mean, we were dealt enough, you know, bad luck cards uh, that it had to had to turn around. Right. I had to even out at some point. <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, that, that, you know, that was kind of that story. And then, you know, it was really my ability, you know, and the management team's ability to kind of navigate the company through those rough waters that that had me be a candidate for Pixtronics. So Pixtronics, if we can sort of segue, had been founded I think it was a it was around 2005 by an XMIT professor had some novel idea on uh, new display technology that was going to be competitive with LCD. And so instead of modulating light using liquid crystal, it would use these mechanical shutters to modulate light, and it offered some benefits in terms of power, uh, color gamut brightness, ability to see it outside, uh, no polarization film, so you could see it with your sunglasses on, et cetera. So I had some real applications and it was a cool technology, but they didn't have a business plan per se, right? So we attracted a series A and a, and a series B. Uh, they were starting to run out of some money, so they needed to raise more capital but the uh, the business plan was getting a little bit long in the tooth, and um, and they wanted somebody with some business experience. Obviously, you know, I was a telecom guy, all, you know, for most of my career, so I didn't know anything about displays. So it was a pretty steep learning curve to figure out, like, you know, what are the what are the big knobs that I could turn in the business, and. Um, and then I was dealt another blow because I joined in June of 2008. And if you remember, there was a little financial crisis that occurred in um, in the fall of 2008. So basically, you're our indicator for the top of the market. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's where we're going. That's what you, you got to learn. Exactly. Well, and, 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 that, and that experience, and I'd love for you to sort of unpack that um, because coming in as a CEO has to be a totally different feel than starting something as a founder, right? So, um, you know, I would think it's, it's probably less, I'm going to say emotional, right? Because you're coming in with the strict vision and, and the strategy and to run a company. Um, so tell us a little bit how, how Pixtronics made it through 08 and 09, um, and how you use your experience from 2001 to get the company through that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have no emotions. You can just ask my wife. <laughs> no. I've hung out with you enough. I, I, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, it was, it was clearly different, but um, 
you know, because I was, you know, I was a founder of Quantum Bridge and you've got an attachment there. So the dynamic really with Quantum Bridge was I had to separate myself from that attachment because that attachment can drive you to making irrational decisions. Because if you're so, you have to really think about the stakeholders and you can't be thinking about yourself in the picture. So you have to remove yourself and your attachment and your ego, which is attached to the business, um, from the business itself and what's right for the three stakeholders that I had mentioned. And so the same thing was true. In that sense, it was the same with Pixtronics. While I wasn't a founder, you know, I joined and a month or two later, the world had changed. Uh, I forget who it was, but one one prominent VC wrote a wrote an article saying VC, you know, venture capital was dead. Nobody was going to invest any venture capital ever again. Mm-hmm. After in, in 2008. And um, yeah, that's how absurd it, it, it got. So I knew that we we're in difficult times in terms of raising a, a, a Series C financing, and we had to create real value. As much as, so I want to talk about emotions. My emotion was, I want to get the hell out of here. Right. You know, I had just joined. I have no personal attachment to the business itself, to the founders, to the you know, to the employees yet. So maybe I just check out and, 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 and look for another road. But I had made a commitment. So I made a personal commitment to the CEO, to, to the investors who brought me on board. That's in my DNA. I was just going to stick it out. And so I, I had to change the business model for the company. Uh, it was clear that we were not going to manufacture displays. We we're not going to be in that business. It's it's uh, what I learned real quick was it's an ever increasing uh, race to the bottom in terms of economies of scale. You know, you just build huge factories and you try to keep those factories full and you've got all this fixed cost and very little variable cost. So you're motivated to drop price continually uh, until you win business to keep those hungry factories open. And 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 fight off competitors that keep coming in that can do it at a lower cost than you can. Right. right. So we're not going to build multi-billion-dollar factories. We're not going to raise that kind of capital. Uh, we need to focus on what we do well that nobody else can do. Where are we differentiated? And our differentiation was really in this technology and the know-how to build it. And so we went with the licensing licensing business model. And we're going to work with partnerships and license the technology to existing manufacturers of LCD. And so that's what I set out to do. We created relationships with, uh, you know, mostly Asian firms, the you know, big ones that, you know, you see when you walk through a Best Buy. And they were motivated to keep their eye on any new technology, technology especially if it was going to had the potential for replacing uh, LCD in any segment, right? So, um, so that's what we did, and uh, we need less people to do that because we weren't going to build factories. So I cut headcount, um, kept the company focused. You have a lot of smart engineers. I mean, this was true in Quantum Bridge as well, and they want to invent things, so they're always going after the next shiny object. And part of the job of a of an entrepreneur CEO is to keep the team motivated and focused 
on the task at hand. So we became laser focused on uh, on building a company that could deliver and transfer intellectual property and protect that intellectual property uh, and continue to grow it over time um, uh, to to these manufacturers. And that allowed us in the in 2009, and you know, it's still you know the aftermath of the 2000. 2008 financial crisis to raise capital from a strategic investor at an up valuation, which was unheard of. So raised money at a higher valuation than the Series B uh, and kept the company going until ultimately uh, we, uh, we we sold it. How how hard how hard was it dealing with? The founder, because it sounds like you came in and and you didn't just change the strategy, you changed the culture of the company, right? Was was the founder on board with that? Did you have to help talk him sort of into why it made sense? Because he had those emotional ties that maybe you had in Quantum Bridge. Yeah, there's a there was a learning curve, and there's also a a, 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 a trust building curve. Um, you know. He, he needed to know who I was and we had to develop a relationship and he had to believe that I was there to create value and reduce risk and create value for him. So he had to truly believe that I wasn't in there to create value for me per se. It was to create value, create a valuable company, create value for him. And then by doing that, you know, I would, create value for myself as well but i i was a result not not in and of itself the motivation tony when when you when when you stepped in as as ceo and you know you're talking to the uh existing investors you're talking to the founder you know the stakeholders um at, at that point was there a an explicit timeline to liquidity or was it you know we want to do something with this with this business over the next 10 years, or was it just, uh, you know, grow it, uh, fix it and, and, you know, kind of see what happens. I'm, I'm just curious in terms of your, your kind of conversation and relationship with, with the investors and in the board, was there any pressure to, um, I mean, I'm sure there was pressure, but, but was there, was there any expectation to, to sell the business in a, in a certain period of time? No, that, that, that wasn't, wasn't really part of it. It was, it was really to get the business on, some sort of track where we could create options for the company and the company could continue to grow. Uh, and again, all options were on the table organically, you know, raise more capital. I mean, raising capital was a piece of it. You know, the company was going to run out of cash uh, because they had worked through most of their series B and was going to need to raise a series C. So that was certainly part of the discussion you know, obviously the, the investors were happy when we were able to raise around with, you know, outside lead at a higher valuation mm -hmm. and, um, and wanted to continue, you know, growing the company. But, you know, it did get to a point where I felt personally that the company really didn't have the ability to continue long term as a separate entity. Uh, and that's sort of a variety of technical and, and business reasons that, you know, I'm not going to kind of get into, but it took some time for me to convince the board 
to head down a path that included the potential for uh, an acquisition. So uh, I was able to do that basically by putting my job on the line and saying that here's where I think the company needs to go. And if you're not on board with that, then maybe you need somebody else to lead the company. And there was a lot of heated discussion. I can remember it vividly because I was in Asia in a hotel room at the time, uh, speaking to, to the board about, about this. There was a variety of emotions going from supportive to, as a CEO, you need to believe in the business and you need to believe in the ability to, you know, to grow it. And I thought that, you know, there was just some fantasy associated with that, that there were limitations given the capital markets and given what we did as a company for us to be successful down that road. So we agreed to take a dual path and again, bring a banker on board to help us with raising a new round uh, uh, from strategic investors and maybe um, testing the, the ground as to whether uh, there was any opportunity for, for a partnership that included, you know, a merger or acquisition. And so it, it sounds like, again, um, like you did with Quantum Bridge, you, and I think you showed great leadership in getting the board to go through sort of these different scenarios, right? So have these conversations, where do you, it's laying it down where you think it should go, and then making sure they were prepared and seeing the reality, it sounds like, um, is sort of what you had them do. Is that right. a fair summary? It is. I mean, there's a, you know, you see it all the time, right? I mean, you see it in people who don't want to sell a certain security because they believe that, okay, yeah, I know it dropped 40% value, but it's going, you know, I, I bought it at price X. Mm -hmm. I saw all of these gains evaporate. I want to hold on to it because I think it's going to bounce back. And it never does. I mean, at some point, you have to make a decision um, as to whether you're going to continue to, you know, hold on to this to the bitter end, or you're going to look for other options or try to diversify or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, and you know, it was clear to me that the company needed to do it, and the timing was right. Uh, and if we could raise more capital at a reasonable price. Well, maybe we can go further and create new options, but if let's not wait until we're at our last nickel before we do this. So let's do it while we have money in the bank, that we, we have partnerships, we have customers, and uh, we have the ability to create some new options for the company. So ultimately they agreed and we went, we headed down that path. So did you go out at that point and actively market the company? Um, how did you end up selling it to Qualcomm? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of analysis that goes in the back rooms, you know, again, by the management team. The bankers were not tremendously helpful in this piece of it, and they, you know, nor should, should they be. It's not their business. They're not intimately involved in the day-to-day. -day. Um, they can help with the marketing process. Uh, you know, they, they certainly can facilitate meetings. They can, they can create 
um, a foil as we go through negotiations. Those are the things that, that at least again in the businesses that I'm involved in that 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 they're that they're good at and can and can and can provide. Uh, they also convey a seriousness to the marketplace that we're you know we're doing this thing. We're we're going out and we're going to talk to whoever we can talk to who's interested in funding the company or um, or acquiring the company. Uh, we identified a match between us and Qualcomm that um, that could be strategic. Qualcomm is a licensing company. They have a great licensing franchise. Uh, they also have great technology, you know, focused largely on, on, uh, on mobility. Uh, they'd like to own more of the eco ecosystem, certainly. And so we provided an avenue towards that. We were a licensing business that allowed them to grow their licensing franchise in a different direction. They had already invested in a display company, so they were interested in display technology. We offered a differentiated solution. So it was ripe for conversations and where those conversations would go, nobody knew. There are other licensing companies. There are also other display companies that would be interested. You know, Samsung had invested in our Series C round, uh, so they were naturally interested in, in the technology and where it might go. So that motivated the, the conversations and um, Qualcomm got very serious very quickly. Uh, and again, most of the negotiation happened between me and the management team on the other side and the banker was sort of at, on, on the sideline staying in their lane. Great. And uh, again, with, with this sort of sale, did you go through, sort of go through the personal planning process again, right? Getting ready for this liquidity event or did you feel pretty comfortable that you had your, that process down? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, I, so personal liquidity, I, I think at that point I had the process down from that standpoint. Where I was going to go next, uh, I kind of knew because I'd seen the movie before that um, that I wasn't going to last long in a large company, uh, which Qualcomm certainly is. So... Uh, I was pretty upfront with that, although I was committed to the integration of the business and helping wherever I, I could. But, um, you know, we were an East Coast company, Qualcomm's a West Coast company. I knew that for us to be integrated into Qualcomm uh, in a successful way, we needed to have somebody from the West Coast management team out on the East Coast. And I would help with that transition. So I stayed on for a year in that role. Uh, and then I consulted for many years later uh, to Qualcomm, uh, but not as a direct employee to Qualcomm. So you were a, a 1099 employee at that right, point? Right, exactly. And um, so let's, we have a few minutes left and and I'd love to turn it to what you're doing now. And, um, you know, with, with Tenon and your VC, your venture, cap, venture capital firm, tell us a little bit about that and, you know, where you're focusing that sort of stuff. Sure. So you were asking earlier about, you know, the founder of Pixtronics, the relationship that had to get, you know, built there. 
one of trust. Well, after Pixtronics, he had left Qualcomm as well and funded a, a startup company in, in gym management software. So for CrossFit gyms, and he brought me on the board and I helped uh, in a consultative role uh, with him getting that company to a point of an, of an exit. And then after that, he had the notion that, okay, I've been an entrepreneur now for a while. I'd like to step on the other side and you know, continue to work with startups, but now as an investor, a coach, and that involvement. And he convinced me to join him in 10 Inventures. So again, he's an MIT alum, so has pretty deep connections to MIT. And obviously MIT, as you know, is a hotbed for innovation. So that that's good from a deal flow perspective. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're entrepreneurs with, you know, sort of different skill sets. Uh, his skill set is really on the technical side. While I'm technical, my skill set tends to be more on the business side. And we feel as a team, we're uniquely positioned because we're not coming strictly from the finance perspective that we can work with entrepreneurs in deep tech, technology, hard, you know, sort of technology and help those entrepreneurs attach that technology to a business model. So it's not just technology for technology's sake. It's technology that's mostly cooked and ready to be attached to a real business model and real opportunity. And that's where we're focused on, on looking at. We're raising a relatively small fund. Initial close will probably be around $5 million. We're looking to raise maybe $10 million in total for this fund. We're excited to work with with entrepreneurs in a, in a new way and hopefully uh, be able to provide some coaching and the benefit of our experience in getting them from, you know, a, a group that's, that's uh, got a novel idea to taking that idea and creating value and reducing risk. And, and Tony, these are, these, this is an early stage fund? Early stage. That's right. Yeah. So seed level, um, maybe we'll participate in some Series A, uh, you know, funding and, and the like. Can Can you just talk a little bit about what what that? So you guys make an investment. You decide you want to make it. You do due diligence. You know, decide you want to make an investment in a specific company, and then do do you and and your partner kind of sit down with the company and have like a strategy session, or or do they have issues that they bring to you periodically, or how does that relationship? typically work with with founders. yeah we, I mean obviously we want we want to be a value-added investor so that's our you know that's our thing that's where we think we can differentiate from some of the other uh, venture groups and be really entrepreneur focused so that you know in the diligence process we want to make sure that again just like the relationship with the investment banker that we want to create a relationship with the with the entrepreneur where they believe that we're not just dumb money, we're going to add value. We want to participate. We want to offer guidance. We also understand that the entrepreneur needs to, um, uh, needs to run the business. We're not, while we have 
deep operating experience and uh, and some battle wounds to um, uh, to share. Uh, we we are not the operators of the business, so they have to be the ones ultimately that operate the business. That's that's, that's interesting. Great. That's that's really good. Um, I know Tony, we're we're coming up on time, and and you've been so gracious with sharing your story and and really sharing your story, not just to us, but to uh, other entrepreneurs and, and business owners. Uh, I just want to thank you for your time and, uh, you know, your, your, your story. I think it's really valuable. Sure. That's great. And um, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Tony. Great. Thanks, Tony. Really appreciate right. it. Thank Take you. Care. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Hold on. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Incorporated offers both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business and that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, visit our website at ubs.com slash working with us. UBS Financial Services Incorporated is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA and SIPC.